Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Amory Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people on the planet. For April, we're focusing on equity and in the environment. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Hannah Krieger, a senior program manager focused on environmental equity at Green Lining, which is a multifaceted advocacy organization whose efforts address the root causes of racial, economic, and environmental inequities in order to meaningfully transform the material conditions of communities of color in California and across the country. The organization acts as an incubator of new policy ideas. As an environmental equity program manager, Hana contributes to the development and implementation of policies leading to clean transportation and mobility investments in California that result in positive health, environmental, and economic outcomes. Her work is focused on the intersection of transportation, climate change, and economic opportunities for low-income colors of community. Let's get into the interview. First, let me introduce my guest, Hana, Senior Program Manager focused on environmental equity at Greenlining. She contributes to the development and implementation of policies leading to clean transportation and mobility investments in California. Her work is focused on the intersection of transportation, climate change, and the economic opportunities of low-income communities of color. She has been the lead author of several reports, with her most recent being Clean Mobility Equity, a playbook, Lessons from California's Clean Transportation Programs. In addition, she serves on a number of advisory committees for cities, agencies, universities, and nonprofits for projects relating to shared mobility. Welcome, Hana. Hi, happy to be here. So happy to have you, and thank you so much for um, taking time with us out of your busy schedule. Um, so before we get into the questions and to set the stage, I'd love to hear from you your definition of environmental equity. Yeah, no, it's a great place to start. And I think people will have various definitions across the board, but just to kind of draw out the difference between environmental equity versus environmental justice, and this is just from Greenlining's perspective, um, but environmental justice is more so concerned with preventing the environmental bads. So uh, reducing pollution, um, kind of uh, maybe closing down an oil refinery near a neighborhood. Um, environmental equity works more so to bring environmental goods into those same communities that are experiencing disproportionate pollution. So increasing access to electric vehicles or solar panels um, or green jobs. And so like obviously these two kind of concepts and strategies have to happen at the same time. They have to be coordinated, um, but in a, a lot of ways they're kind of working um, on kind of almost different ends of the spectrum. Okay, so I would say that it's almost like, uh, I would say the, the, the social work end of the, in the environmental, uh, the fight against the, um, all the uh, climate change and, um, and uh, uh, problems and, and challenges in the environment. That's what, how I would look at it. 
Yeah, definitely. And you need both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, uh, what would you say, how does um, environmental inequity, how is it affecting low-income individuals and minorities? Yeah, so I mean, this, you have to almost look way back in history to understand like why environmental inequity and injustice most impacts low-income folks of color. Um, but specifically looking at one policy from the 1920s, which was called redlining, um, which really continues to shape our cities today. Uh, redlining was essentially forced residential segregation um, where communities of color, particularly Black, Latino, Asians, some in some cases even Jewish communities were forced to live in uh, certain areas of cities um, away from white communities. And these uh, areas were more often than not located in undesirable areas that were, you know, near uh, polluting industries. Um, later in the following decades, highways would be built through these neighborhoods. Um, toxic waste sites would be, you know, dumped near these communities. And so over the years, um, these communities have become extremely overburdened by pollution and toxins, which has led to all kinds of detrimental uh, health impacts today. And at the same time, like those are the environmental bads, but then kind of back to the environmental equity conversation, those same communities today have much harder time um, accessing all of the kind of sustainable programs, the green technology, um, the kind of the types of assets um, that are now helping us to address climate change, but they're not getting to those same communities. And that's why, you know, we need environmental equity policies to help rectify that. Now, um, I guess I don't mean to uh, sound, I guess, in insensitive, but why then, uh, how does this, uh, I guess, affect everyone? Or why would this be important to everyone? Um, just because uh, if, uh, I guess, low-income communities and minorities have been, I would say, um, sidelined. Um, why is it important then that uh, we come together and uh, try to take those communities out of um, that situation? Yeah, the reality is that, I mean, first of all, environmental issues are economic issues, right? Uh, the impacts of climate change as a result from essentially, you know, environmental pollution and racism climate change is going to affect everyone. Of course, it'll impact low-income folks of color first and worst, um, but no matter you know, how wealthy you are, you, you can't escape that either. And at the same time, like climate change is gonna take, an, it already is taking a huge toll on our economy. Um, and if we don't pay for it now, we are gonna pay for it heavy in the following years. Um, the racial wealth gap plus climate disaster, both of those things, again, you know, take huge tolls on our economy. Um, and it's honestly, we're operating at a loss by not addressing both of those issues. I know that, um, I guess it's uh, uh, the UN right now, they have um, uh, their 2030 that all the things that they want to um, get in place. And so, um, you know, right now, obviously, we just had a, a pandemic, which I don't think anybody was planning for. Um, uh, so that's only, uh, you know, I guess nine years out now. Um, and uh, one of the things that I was reading in your uh, uh, report on the clean mobility um, which I want to dive into a little bit, um, is that uh, the UN wants to get uh, a whole global in infrastructure in place by 2030. 
um, which I think is uh, uh, aggressive. And I don't know, I guess, um, if it if it can be done. And I know um, your report addresses a number of programs and the different ways that uh, people are um, implementing um, uh, these different pilot uh, programs and incentives um, to hopefully uh, work towards this area. Um, I guess, what is the likelihood um, that uh, uh, that all this infrastructure can um, actually take place in the next, uh, I'll just say decade, because I'm just going to count 2020 out? Yeah, it's a great question. So the good news is that we already have all of the technologies at hand. We know exactly what we have to do to solve climate change. It's not some mystery that we can't figure out. The one barrier is the social and political willpower. But I think if you know this last election in the US is any indication, like political willpower can change fast and it is changing fast. I mean, where we're at right now with you know the Biden administration, his new commitment to climate change, racial justice, um, you know, his new infrastructure and jobs plan. I think that's an indication of when we want to, we can move quickly. And so given that, like I said before, we have the technology at hand, it's just about getting the right people in power to, um, yeah, help fund, fund the kinds of changes we need. But at the same time, like we need communities at all levels holding our politicians accountable to get us in um, all of this in place by 2030. I guess the other question I have then um, is that um, now just thinking of uh, uh, low income and uh, minority communities, and um, this is just from uh, coming just from my perspective, but I'm sure this is something that you have encountered too, is that, uh, you know, it's good to get the infrastructure in place, but obviously it takes a whole mindset change. Um, and so, uh, I guess what, looking at your report, I guess how, or what programs or, um, or how are people, uh, working first to, uh, I guess, change the mindset in these communities that can make it possible that this infrastructure and, uh, you know, um, having electric cars and all of that, um, can be implemented. Yeah, I would say, I mean, in large part, we're all essentially kind of prisoners of a system that uh, has not really allowed us to always you know, make the most sustainable behavior changes. And so I'd really like to actually take the onus off of the individual and like focus on like, how can we create a system where the easiest, most affordable option is for someone to choose an electric vehicle over a gas vehicle, you know, is to recycle instead of throw something away. And how do we create a system that reduces those barriers to access, that targets those resources and incentives to uh, the people that need it most? Um, because yeah, at the end of the day, of course, individual actions are important. Of course, individual responsibility is critical, but it's that collective action, you know, when all of us, uh, are working in the, in the same direction that's going to have that impact. And so as advocates and policymakers, we have to create those kinds of systems and programs. Um, and the ones that are highlighted in the Clean Mobility Equity Report um, are great examples of that, um, that you know, really does kind of take our 
equity approaches and strategies to the next level in terms of prioritizing, uh, you know, people who live in polluted communities who are, you know, extremely low income and saying, you know what, we're actually going to prioritize these resources uh, to these communities who need them most. And so what are some actions um, that individuals in society can take to help um, the environment that are unexpected or new? Um, one of the th biggest things, obviously, is everybody's told to recycle, recycle, recycle. Um, is there something new that um, people can start doing? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's like the general things like think about buying an electric a car, uh, look into the financial incentives that government provides, recycle. But again, it's it's I don't want the onus to be on individuals. I don't think that's fair when the system has not necessarily uh, has been set set up for us. But at the same time, like, I think the most impactful things that each individual can do is to um, organize, to be, get educated on the movements that they can join, to strategize, to donate to those organizations doing great work, uh, to figure out like how they as individuals can participate in um, campaigns or, or political uh, you know, actions um, and also voting in the right politicians and not stopping there and holding them accountable if you know those politicians that represent them are not voting right when it comes to climate or environmental issues and so just staying engaged at every step of the way um, i think is the best thing that individuals can do okay great um how would you say uh one of the things um that we had uh, briefly um spoke about is um how can uh, governments, um, not just the U.S., but just in, in general, advance uh, clean mobility equity um, to address uh, the, the climate change problem? Yeah, I mean, one of the big takeaways from this report we just published is that electric vehicles are not enough. Um, electric vehicles are not a silver bullet solution. They still contribute to congestion. They will not help us uh, meet climate change on their own. And so the best thing that governments really can do um, is to prioritize a more comprehensive mobility equity approach, which for us is focusing on moving people, not more cars, no matter if they're electric or not, right? Mm -hmm. And that means uh, prioritizing investments in walking, biking, public transit infrastructure, again, that are targeted towards the people who need it most, the people who face the most barriers, uh, the people who live in the most polluted communities that have been underinvested in and so for so long. And at the same time, the government has to eventually begin phasing out any programs that continue to entrench our dependency on automobiles, again, electric or not. We have limited resources and therefore we need to target it to the people who need it most and to a more comprehensive um, kind of vision of mobility. Now, this is going to be a kind of a weird question, but sometimes I guess uh, something that can be um, a tragedy can be turned into an opportunity. So obviously we're, well, I guess we're still in this pandemic, uh, hopefully coming out. <laughs> um, and so uh, would you say um, because of the pandemic, because people were um, at least this is what I was reading. I don't know because I, uh, I wasn't, uh, I'm not a scientist, but I'm, uh, I, I was reading a lot of reports because of the lack of movement. Like people were obviously driving less. Um, they were not flying places. 
um, that some of the um, different things like uh, um, uh, water animals that we hadn't seen started to um, uh, come out and uh, obviously felt comfortable because people weren't around on the animal side. And then uh, some of the water started to look a little bit cleaner. Um, so would you say that the pandemic, in a way, um, uh, helped, um, I guess, uh, um, showcase that uh, that there is uh, hope? Or um, did you, you think that it actually hurt things um, from the admire, uh, environmental equity um, standpoint? From a strictly environmental perspective, sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the short term, uh, you know, we saw cleaner water or reduced air pollution. And in the long term, I, I think I'm a little bit less confident in that. Um, I think specifically pointing to the drop in public transit ridership in this last year, you know, that's not, that's just, I mean, hopefully it's just a temporary thing, but I think people may be a little bit more hesitant to get on a train with other people, um, even in a post-pandemic world. With more people working remotely, we may see a sustained drop in public transit ridership. And mm -hmm. the fear there is that already our public transit agencies are struggling um, They with a drop in fares. And we know that low-income transit-dependent people are going to be harmed the most by a drop in ridership, a drop in fare revenue, which ultimately means service cuts for public transit. So kind of looking at environmental equity impacts more broadly um, with kind of a lens on public transit, um, yeah, that's, that's, I think, where my biggest fear is. And are wealthy people going to now prefer to drive to work instead of take the train? Is that going to lead to more long-term, um, you know, transportation, greenhouse gas emissions? So that's obviously, you know, kind of a very focused look on the transportation sector. But I think, unfortunately, unless we make big changes, that's the direction we may be heading. Okay. Yes. Um... Yeah, I was I was wondering because uh, as I was reading all those different um, things, I was looking uh, at things from uh, just online, and then also uh, uh, one of my uh, favorites. I'm a little bit of a nerd. Um, National Geographic. They were looking at you know um, different places on uh, the effects of the um, uh, uh, pandemic from environment. Obviously, you know it's just a, a, a moment. Um, obviously, when things are I don't know if we're ever going to go back to uh, regular normal, but when things uh, get moving again, I guess that's what I will say. Um, you know, uh, those numbers probably will uh, decline in like uh, what they saw of things in, in improving for um, on the environment side. Um, and so uh, kind of uh, leading um, a little bit uh, away from that, but I want and going into um uh, your report. Um, is there a program that uh, you would like to highlight or would you like to stay away from highlighting um, any of the programs that were in the report that you think um, are, are um, uh, stand out to you? Yeah, I can kind of highlight a little bit of like the evolution of these programs. So mm -hmm. maybe around 10 years ago when California first started investing heavily in clean transportation technology, the kind of general strategy was to take a pretty prescriptive approach by providing financial incentives for people to purchase electric vehicles. So like on its face, like that's great. You know, we really helped to 
develop and uplift an entire electric vehicle market. Um, unfortunately, when you look at who has benefited from that, the vast majority of beneficiaries from that policy um, are middle and wealthy income white people. Um, many of them who bought very fancy, expensive electric vehicles. And so from an equity perspective, like with our limited resources, that's not who needs those uh, resources and incentives the most. And so kind of with that as background, um, the programs that I'd like to point to are ones that are moving away from a prescriptive approach, ones that are specifically targeted to low-income folks of color, and ones that are driven by individual community needs and recognize that an electric car does not work for everyone. That does not meet the mobility needs of many people. Um, and so one program I'd like to highlight is the Sustainable Transportation Equity Project. Um, this was probably one of the most the newest programs. It's 100% targeted to communities that suffer the most from pollution and poverty. Um, and what it does is that it funds uh, those communities to do a community-driven planning process to assess their needs, to figure out what kinds of mobility options best meet their needs. Is it electric vehicles? Is it public transit uh, infrastructure or better bike lanes? Um, and at the same time, um, this program also requires um, that there'll be a kind of interlocking complementary investments in um, anti-displacement measures because we want to make sure that all these new technologies coming in doesn't have you know unintended consequences. Um, there's also required climate adaptation plans, again, to make sure there's no unintended consequences of this investment. Um, there's also required workforce development plans because we know that every single investment can have you know, positive impacts for green jobs and workforce development and training. And so then this program also funds the implementation of those plans, of those infrastructure, the mobility plans, um, the potential jobs and workforce training. Um, and so this program has recently uh, been awarded to, I believe, be, uh, 12 communities across California to do the planning grant, and then to three communities to do the implementation grant. Um, I believe in Los Angeles, um, Fresno, and the city of Stockton. And so this is a really innovative program. It's one that we're recommending be, um, you know, hugely uh, increased in the amount of funding. We're recommending that it be replicated and scaled up on a national level because it really provides a model of like what could the most inclusive, equitable, innovative mobility program look like. Um, one that's driven by community needs and is targeted to those who need it the most. Okay. And so... Um, what would you say is often the greatest barrier um, to getting these programs um, implemented? Is it just money or is it just uh, 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 people or a combo? There's so many factors that, that go into it. Um, I would say, yeah, the first hurdle is is getting uh, policymakers, decision makers to um, allocate the uh, sufficient amount of resources uh, for it. But then another thing is that a lot of these programs are competitive grants. So mm -hmm. cities, communities um, from around the state are competing with one another to, to win these grants. And the reality is that um, even though these are all targeted towards you know, low income communities of color, 
the communities that have just a little bit more resources, have a little bit more capacity, maybe a little bit more technical expertise, often win out on those competitive applications. And so we're even seeing inequities um, within these equity programs. Um, so there's you know, some barriers um, around making sure that every single applicant has the tools and resources they need um, to not only submit a competitive application, but to win those funds. And so a lot of the recommendations in our report um, are very specifically targeted to that. And at the same time, like a lot of these programs require a partnership between a city, a community-based organization, community leaders, um, other groups. And that is something that's a little bit easier said than done. That requires trust. That requires um, kind of a structure for uh, developing a inclusive and equitable partnership. And those things take time. Um, it definitely does not happen overnight. But for us, like that is what constitutes an equitable program. So that kind of leads to the, the the barrier that I always see when it comes to um, I'm just uh, just because obviously I'm not the mobility um, expert, but one of the things that um, that I'm familiar with is uh, from even from a real estate um, perspective. So obviously um, the population has grown, and um, and uh, in California. Um, uh, there's a, a housing shortage and things like that. And, uh, obviously then, um, builders and contractors have started to move into, uh, different neighborhoods. And then this brings up, uh, the whole thing of gentrification, um, and usually with gentrification, um, the, uh, communities that, uh, used to be low income or, um, uh, I'll just say, uh, had, uh, ethnic minorities in it, um, often, uh, get pushed out, um, uh, not just sometimes for um, uh, financially, but just because it, it changed is no longer their community. And, you know, the, and uh, the things that uh, used to be um, common, um, such as, uh, you know, um, uh, ethnic uh, grocery stores. Like I, I once uh, read this article, I guess there were a lot of people who were um, going then to like the, the Spanish grocery store. And so then, um, since everybody was going to the Spanish uh, uh, market because they had the best tortillas and they had, you know, the, these uh, desserts. And, and then all of a sudden people wanted to start eating uh, goat and people never were eating goat before uh, when they went and then they started going to the markets and the prices in these, the Spanish uh, market, because of course the people were willing to buy more and the demand was more, um, started to go up. And so then the people who were, um, uh, you know, uh, used to be in that community could no longer even afford the food that they, that was needed to, to them <laughs> because it started to, um, you know, become overpriced. And so, uh, the same thing, I guess, uh, the, the fear that I always see with, um, you know, moving into this, uh, higher technology, um, is that it starts to naturally just put, uh, push out, um, those that are, um, low income, um, not because uh, necessarily they don't want to, you know, obviously participate, um, but they just can't or um, in some ways, uh, you know, they like the old ways. Um, so how how do, I guess, as you were saying, for um, trust and building trust and these relationships, I guess, what would you say are um, the best ways that 
uh, either like uh, governments or cities, how um, how can they go about uh, building trust that this is not going to happen to these communities that all of a sudden they're displaced and, um, you know, and they don't even recognize their own community anymore? Yeah, so there, there's been lots of cases cited where electric vehicle charging stations pop up in these kind of, you know, transitional neighborhoods where gentrification is kind of starting to creep in. And the original residents are like, well, what the hell is this? Like, this isn't for me. I don't have an electric car. Like, this is a very clear indication of uh, gentrification. I don't like this. And completely understandably so. Like, no one probably asked them uh, where they wanted the electric car charger to be. They've never even, uh, you know, heard of one. They don't know how they can access one. And so that's why we push for these community-driven clean mobility programs that are highlighted in the report where those residents are deeply and intimately involved in shaping what those investments are going to look like. And therefore, we can be sure that the kinds of investments, whether that's simply, you know, a uh, sheltered bus station um, or um, a safer sidewalk, if they've been involved in deciding what kinds of investments uh, should be um, you know, instituted there, they're going to be like, that is for me. I was involved in that process. I'm, you know, empowered in this process. And that's not to say that that alone will not solve, uh, you know, displacement and gentrification. That's why it's important that these programs build in anti-displacement measures. But again, anti-displacement in a way that is community driven because anti-displacement measures look completely different in every community. Um, and so, you know, cities have to recognize that, um, it's important to make those investments um, without the unintended consequence of displacement. Hmm. I can say it's a tough one. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, because just the, the grocery store thing alone, I was, uh, you know, when people can't afford their the native food that they were used to at the, like, um, either like uh, the, the Spanish supermarket um, I remember reading an article about that, and I was like, "That's that's sad." Um, so I guess what would you say um, is the the most important thing that you could um, that you see for the for the future in um, in in creating a more um, equitable um, environment? What's the most important thing? I mean, obviously I'm very biased. My world is very much the transportation sector within uh, the climate space. But the reality is that transportation emissions are the number one contributor to climate change. Um, but at the same time, the reality is that no matter if we stopped all emissions today, the climate is still going to change. We are going to have to adapt. We have to prepare now. Um, we have to build more resilient cities um, in the face of these um, kind of really scary changes. And so I'd say that we both have to reduce emissions as fast as we can, but also come to terms with the reality that we're gonna be living in a much different world. Um, but And government really has to uh, provide the funding and the structures um, to help ensure that the most vulnerable populations, which again, we know are low-income folks of color, um, who are, you know, are, are going to be able to weather that storm. Okay, perfect, beautiful answer. 
Well, thank you um, so much um, for uh, informing us about um, uh, clean mobility and about um, the different uh, uh, programs and um, ways that uh, low-income individuals are affected and how that it's all intertwined um, with economics and the environment and that none of us, um, whether we are uh, a low-income minority or not, that we are all in this together. I guess that's the tagline that we took from 2020. <laughs> We're all in this together and even more so um, with the um, environment. Uh, so thank you, Hannah, for um, uh, sharing that with us. And then I would like to know um, for people who would like to dive in a little bit deeper into the report. Um, I was reading the report and uh, found uh, a lot of the programs um, quite um, interesting and uh, and excited to see some of them um, implemented in the future as I'm here in California. Um, uh, how can people uh, find out a little bit more about you? And then, of course, um, uh, once they, they can go online, of course, to um, uh, download this report. Um, can you let people know a little bit more about how they can find out more or probably, um, or is there a way that they can uh, maybe get these programs um, implemented or started or um, or talk to their politicians to get these implemented in their community? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best resource is to just go straight to the report. Um, many of them, um, a community-based organization, a resident group are actually eligible to apply for funding through the state of California. Um, and so I would encourage folks to look at some of those community-driven programs and uh, see if you know they they could do it on their own, but they could also partner with their city, um, with a other government um, entity. Um, and I would encourage you to also check out the other resources and reports on uh, the Green Lining Institute's website. I have about five of them up there, so there should be plenty of reading material there. Um, but yeah, there's uh, definitely lots of resources on our website. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for your time and insight. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or simply want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work to start your project of change today. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we are focused on what matters. <laughs>